In the scripture from Mark's gospel that we heard moments ago, we meet up with a character by the name of John. More commonly known as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And by all appearances, John was, what word would you use, eccentric by many standards of measurement. And I often find myself wondering, what might it have been like to experience John the Baptizer's ministry up close and personally, if his ministry was anything like Scripture describes it to be? I had the opportunity to spend one of my college semesters in London, and during my time in London, I would frequently walk or jog through Hyde Park. And whenever I would go to Hyde Park, I would often see an individual whose real name I never learned. People simply called him the prophet. Somebody told me that he lived in a small apartment nearby and came to Hyde Park pretty much every day. His hair communicated wildness in both its length and its tangledness. His beard had not been trimmed for years, meaning that it had achieved what I like to call ZZ Top proportions. He normally wore sandals, even on chilly days, tattered jeans, and what I guess was a uh, trench coat with the sleeves cut off. People called him the prophet because he would walk through Hyde Park, crying out against what he believed to be the evils of society and the nearness of God's judgment. And people would stop in their tracks, myself included, quite frankly, just to, just to take this man in because his appearance was so dynamic and so unsettling and, quite frankly, so bizarre. I wonder if John the Baptizer inspired that kind of curiosity among the people of Jerusalem back in the day. I wonder. I really do. He conducted his ministry in the wilderness surrounding Jerusalem. His wardrobe was avant-garde, right? He adorned himself in a garment of camel's hair. And the camel's hair, by the way, might have been a nod to the prophetic legacy of the Old Testament prophet Elijah, who we are told also adorned himself in a garment of animal hair. And their common garment might have reflected a common ministry shared by these two prophets in two entirely different eras but charged with the same task, the task of preparing the way for the redemptive activity of God. For food, well, that's where the story got really interesting to me as a kid, because John the Baptist, we are told, nourished himself with a pretty steady diet of locusts and wild honey. And when I was a kid in Sunday school, the only way that I could think about that was to contemplate the image of somebody pouring dried crickets on my golden grams. That's the only way that I could make sense of it. Locusts and wild honey. Locusts, by the way, and especially locust-devouring crops, were often interpreted as a sign of God's judgment. Honey, who knows? Honey might have called to mind the land flowing with milk and honey into which the people of Israel were eventually delivered, and so perhaps even the content of John's diet was a prophetic sign concerning the nearness of God's judgment and the deliverance from God's judgment that God was now making available. Maybe. 
maybe. Through the eyes of faith, we have come to see John the baptizer as the one who prepared his portion of the world for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of God's Christ. Think about it this way. I've always been so impressed, and some of you will be able to relate to this. I've always been so incredibly impressed when I've talked to new parents, specifically about how they've had to recreate their home for their newborn child. New parents, for example, can't simply place a newborn infant in the middle of the bed. There has to be a crib. There has to be a bassinet. New parents can't simply say to one another, hey, check and see what leftovers are in the refrigerator. We've got to feed this kid something. No, the whole kitchen has to be stocked with a different kind of food. And you know that parents can't simply look at that newborn and say, yeah, the bathroom's right over there. Be sure to wash your hands. The whole house has to be stocked with diapers and wipes and creams and powders. Here's my point. A home has to be recreated before it can become a welcoming environment for a new life. And perhaps those circumstances help us to interpret the ministry of John the baptizer in a fresh way. Because by all appearances, John invited, no, admonished his hearers to take seriously the priorities and the holiness of God. And in doing so, when people would take seriously the priorities of God, they would, in a sense, recreate their lives into spiritual homes that were better prepared to welcome the divine activity of God. And what was the essence of this spiritual recreation that John the baptizer proclaimed? What was the essence of this spiritual preparation for God's activity? In a word, the essence was repentance. We're told that John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, by the way, is a translation of a Greek word that is not particularly easy to translate, at least succinctly. It connotes a reorientation of heart and mind that leads to a redirected trajectory in one's living. To put it another way, when we speak of repentance in the church, we are speaking of a turning. And more specifically, a turning toward either an alignment or a realignment with the rhythms of God. Repentance. I would suspect that repentance is one of those trigger words for some of you who have had perhaps more painful experiences with the church, especially given the way the church over its history has so frequently monopolized, manipulated, sometimes even weaponized the concept of repentance, often to generate shame other times to preserve spiritual hierarchy. Case in point, I'm remembering today a husband who sat in my church office many years ago, and for half an hour he complained bitterly about his wife, and specifically he complained about what he perceived to be her complete inattentiveness to his life and his needs. And one of the things that I've learned over the course of a few decades of ministry is that very rarely does a complaining person tell the full story about anything. And so at one point in the conversation, I asked this man if he were able to identify any of his own behaviors that contributed to his marital struggle. And as soon as I asked the question, he became visibly irritated. Look, he said, and I'll never forget this. Look, I came here today to talk about my wife's sins, not mine. 
so often you see the church reduces the sacred work of repentance to an institutional mechanism designed to illuminate someone else's sin. The end result is a community of faith that is all too happy to talk about the theological reality of sin as long as it's someone else's sin we have in mind. And yet, right, and yet, in spite of how frequently repentance has been distorted and monopolized, it remains the calling that John the Baptizer places upon people of faith. Repentance, it is as though John the Baptizer truly believes that repentance is uniquely linked to the work of making crooked paths straight in preparation for an encounter with the divine. Ah, oh, it saddens me, friends, and this is the truth. It saddens me when I reflect upon how frequently I reduce repentance in my own discipleship to a matter of drudgery, dogma, a joyless pattern of try and fail that produces more shame than freedom, more dread than hope. John the baptizer had to have had something grander than that in mind when he proclaimed his baptism of repentance. He had to have had something grander than that in mind. Maybe, and I'm simply thinking out loud with you this morning, inviting you to think out, inviting you to think with me. But maybe John is asking us to believe some things in his proclamation of a baptism of repentance. Maybe John is inviting us to believe that repentance, when understood as God's accomplishment, primarily, rather than ours, can become this steady ripening, if I can use that image, this steady ripening of reordered priorities and reconfigured impulses. Maybe John is inviting us to believe that in the work of repentance, that Christ himself comes alongside us not as an accuser, and that's important because isn't that where we go wrong so frequently when we think about repentance? It's in the way we conceptualize God fundamentally as an accuser who stands against us. But what if John is inviting us to believe that in the work of repentance that Christ comes alongside us not as an accuser, but as an advocate, embracing us and gently patiently leading us out of our most distorted fixations and into the beautiful life that he makes possible. That kind of repentance, of course, is not a one-day event. That's a way of life, isn't it? That kind of repentance is not a solitary prayer, but a burgeoning harvest of love and forgiveness and integrity. This Advent, I'm wondering if the work of repentance might become for us less about guilt and shame and more about the cultivation of grace. This Advent, I'm wondering if repentance might become for us less a matter of image management. You know, how do I look? Or even worse, at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. Maybe repentance can become for us less about image management, how we look, and more about an authentic invitation to Jesus to come into the often destructive way 
that we treat creation, the often harmful way we treat one another, the often heartbreaking way we treat ourselves. What if repentance this Advent is nothing more and nothing less than a daily rehearsal of love and integrity so that over time the rehearsal begins to seem less like a rehearsal and more of a way of life, as natural to us as breathing and every bit as urgent? What if repentance were to look something like that? I read recently about a compelling 10-year friendship between two professional adults who are living in the greater Boston area. One of the adults in that friendship was Guy Ben Aharan, a theater, a theater director who runs a nonprofit in Boston. The other adult in the friendship, Iman Ansari, a pediatrician. Ben Aharan is an Israeli man who still has family in Israel. Ansari is a Palestinian woman who still has family in Palestine. And over the last decade, they've cultivated the kind of friendship with one another that has led to an ever-deepening sensitivity and appreciation. And more specifically, an appreciation of one another's heritage. And sometimes that appreciation has happened through laughter. Sometimes it's happened through tears. As you might imagine, since October 7th, their friendship has intensified, as has the scrutiny around their friendship in the Boston area. Radio Boston, in fact, recently conducted an interview with both Ben Aharan and Ansari. And in the course of that interview, the interviewer asked what I thought was a really good question. It was the kind of question that the church might ask. The question was this, what have you learned about love? In the context of your unlikely friendship, what have you learned about love? And it was Ansari who responded first. Well, she said, I guess I've learned that loving requires my daily commitment to recognizing another person's humanity through it all. To which Ben Aharan responded, that is so beautifully put, especially, he said, in a world that's always eager to give you 12 or 15 reasons why you should not love somebody. And then Ben Aharan added this, I've learned that loving sometimes demands turning away. And that's the phrase I'll ask you to hold on to because it's a phrase that I think implies a form of repentance. I've learned that love sometimes requires me to turn away from everything that prevents me from seeing love as the best idea. Listen to that again. I've learned that sometimes love requires me to turn away from everything that prevents me from seeing love as the very best idea. Could it be that this work of repentance is just that simple and just that profound? Could it be that the kind of repentance to which John the baptizer calls us is nothing more and nothing less than this daily willingness to turn away from anything that would prevent us from seeing love as the best idea? And I'm talking about a multi-layered love here, love for God, love for creation that has been entrusted to our care, 
Love for our neighbors, including the most inconvenient and difficult neighbors. Love for ourselves. Could it be that repentance is in fact a daily rehearsal of that kind of love so that over time it stops feeling like a rehearsal and it becomes for us this way of life that is as natural to us as breathing? As Advent continues, friends, I guess I'm simply inviting you to hurry up and wait. But more specifically today, I'm inviting you to wait in a spirit of repentance. Not repentance built upon guilt or shame or spiritual hierarchy, but repentance that may just inspire you today or sometime this week to turn away from something that's preventing you from seeing love as the best way forward. John the Baptizer would have us to believe that that kind of repentance is instrumental in making crooked paths straight in preparation for a transforming encounter with the divine. I would add that that kind of repentance might just recreate our lives into spiritual homes that are prepared to receive a Christ who perpetually arrives. It is in the name of this perpetually arriving Christ that I gratefully preach. Amen.